Hey everyone, this is Owen. We are still on break until July, but we are re-releasing an old favorite of ours. This is a conversation between Jim and Jared Bernstein comparing a basic income to a jobs guarantee. Hello, welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. And in every episode we've done, whether we're talking to an artist, a politician, an activist, Everyone has been a supporter of the basic income, but this week we actually have a dissenter. So a couple months back, there was a debate on basic income that was organized by Intelligence Squared. It put Andy Stern and Charles Murray arguing for basic income up against Jared Bernstein and Jason Furman arguing against it. And most of the debate focused on the pros and cons of universal basic income. But one thing that popped up was Jared Bernstein mentioned that he was actually a fan of a jobs guarantee program, which would be another ambitious plan that falls pretty far outside the scope of the sort of legislation that has been considered recently in the U.S., also aimed at providing economic security, but looking different than something like an unconditional basic income. So Jim sat down with Jared Bernstein and discussed their feelings on on the basic income and a jobs guarantee and a bunch of other topics. From my listening, I found that Jared Bernstein has a lot of the same goals and a lot of the same perspectives as as people in the basic income movement, but comes at them from something of a different angle and different experience, and that comes out in the conversation. So without further ado, this is Jim Pugh and Jared Bernstein on the Basic Income Podcast. I am here with Jared Bernstein, a senior fellow at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. Jared, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So many of our listeners may have seen the basic income debate that was held by Intelligence Squared back in March between Andy Stern and Charles Murray arguing for a basic income as the social safety net of the future, and then you and Jason Furman arguing against that idea. One of the things you mentioned there was the idea of a jobs guarantee program in, in the U.S. So I'm just curious, can you tell us a little bit more about how you think a program like that might work? Well, sure. Let me start by saying a little bit about why I think we, we need it. Um, as we speak, the unemployment rate is quite low nationally. It's 4.4%. And most economists, and I'm someone who thinks about the questions of full employment a lot, will tell you that's full employment. That's certainly what the Federal Reserve would say. But in fact, uh, we know that there are pockets of weak labor demand, where even at a low national unemployment rate, there are parts of the country where people can't find enough work. And so I've observed that even at full employment, sometimes when labor demand is insufficient, uh, you need to think about a, uh, a program to fill that gap. Uh, the way I think of it is, uh, we, we kind of all, uh, all agree, or at least kind of the economics community agrees, that when credit markets freeze up, you need a lender of last resort, and that's the Federal Reserve. Well, when the job market fails to provide adequate opportunities for all comers, um, I think you need a job creator of last resort. And there's a couple of different ways to do that, which I can get into in a minute, but I just wanted to give you the motivation first. And I know I'm based out in the Bay Area, and particularly around here, there's a lot of new companies that are are basing their approach to work very much on a task-based model, not seeing it as full employment, but rather seeing this as 
smaller sets of work that that people uh, people take on in the quote unquote gig economy. Um, so I'm curious to hear is is that something that you feel like connects here? Is that something entirely separate? It's definitely uh, a connection. Uh, there, there's definitely a connection there, but I think it's separate in the sense that. What I'm talking about are places where there's just not enough work for people who want and need it. Now, in the case of the gig economy, there may be not enough steady work or work of a kind of structure that people want. Like if somebody wants a steady job where they know their hours, um, and that the flexibility of the gig economy or maybe even the insecurity therein just doesn't appeal to them. Uh, that's a kind of a job quality issue or a structure of employment issue. So I'm talking about something that's kind of different than that, which is parts of the, I mean, think of the Rust Belt. You've certainly heard about that in the context of, of the Trump story. But also, you know, there are neighborhoods and urban areas that are kind of like job deserts. There's just not mm -hmm. enough jobs there for the folks who want them. Uh, so I can think of two two ways to deal with that. The first is um, a real direct job creation program by the federal government, uh, where the federal government uh, creates gainful employment for people. And I, I do think in terms of not just job quantity, but job quality. So these jobs have to be adequately remunerative. Uh, and the other is a subsidized model, where the government subsidizes employers to uh, hire uh, workers, uh, sometimes to the tune of 80 or 90 percent, uh, that is the government would pick up 80 or 90 percent of the wage for some fixed amount of time. Uh, I know a lot more about the second one because we did something like that during the Recovery Act when I was working for the Obama administration. But those are the two broad models. One is where the government directly creates job almost in the spirit of the New Deal, and the other is uh, more of a subsidized employment model. So if we were to pursue a, a jobs guarantee program, do you have any sense what sort of timeline this would be on? Is this something that we're talking about? I mean, with the big caveat that who knows what will be happening with the federal government over the next few years, but is this something that seems achievable in the relatively short term, or is this more of a, a longer term, something 10, 20 plus years from now? With a rational, functional government, uh, at least the subsidized employment idea could be ramped up quickly. And interestingly, this is not very well known, there are a number of programs like that in place already. It's the VISTA jobs program, there's a number of youth employment programs. These are all very small programs. But again, during the Recovery Act, so in 2009, we quickly ramped up a subsidized employment program. It was under the aegis of the TANF program, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. And uh, there was something like maybe under $2 billion, I think I have that right, that was assigned to a program where in states, it, it was actually uh, more of a kind of a flow of, of resources than a program, but basically we said to states, you can use this money, which we're ramping up for TANF because we're in this really deep recession, you can use this money to subsidize employment for uh, low-wage people who are facing labor market barriers can't get into the job market. Uh, you have to be careful not to displace somebody else, so you can't go to a, uh, an employer can't say, "Oh well, mm -hmm. uh, Zoe, you're fired, uh, <laughs> but Ricky, you're hired." <laughs> so you have to be careful to avoid this. You know, there, there are um, ways in which you have to craft this thing to make it most effective. But we found that during the Recovery Act, 
this this program created over 250,000 jobs in a bunch of different states, um, subsidizing employment, uh, again, often to the tune of 70, 80, 90 percent, sometimes for three months, six months, maybe a year. And after the subsidized employment ended, as it did, it was a time-limited program, a number of those workers were able to stay on into the labor market. So it was kind of clear. It looked like, in some cases, the program helped them get over a labor market barrier that was blocking them. Hmm. So during the Intelligence Squared debate, you raised several concerns about universal basic income as a policy to pursue. Uh, for those who weren't able to watch the debate, could you share with us what what your main concerns on that front are? Yeah, I would say my main concern uh, comes from the proposal by Charles Murray, who was one of my uh, opponents in that debate. <laughs> so he was on the other side. And he's arguing for a form of UBI that I am absolutely sure would significantly worsen and deepen uh, poverty and economic insecurity. Uh, what Murray wants to do, and I'm not telling tales out of school here because I've debated him numerous times on this, so uh, you know, sometimes it's not fair to argue with somebody who's not there to, to uh, defend themselves, but uh, Charles knows exactly where I'm coming from here. Uh, he wants to essentially take all of the resources that we're devoting to um, both the safety net and to some of our social insurance programs, Social Security, Medicare, and divvy them up per capita across the whole population. So make it a universal basic income paid for by aggregating all the resources we're currently spending on uh, the safety net and social welfare program and, and, and social insurance programs. And if you obviously the arithmetic is quite simple because you're going to be really uh, seriously diluting the resources that you give uh, that, that are already targeted and pretty well targeted, I argued, in that debate uh, at folks in you know, the bottom half, the bottom third of the income scale. So if you take resources that are, are well-focused, well-targeted, and as I argued that night, having their intended effect and pretty effective, uh, and you give them to you know 320 million people, <laughs> the population of the U.S., um, you're very much going to dilute the program. So that's probably my main objection to at least that version of the plan. 